As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Until the end of October 2021, there's the first ever Theories of Everything merch at the link in the description, or you can visit tinyurl.com slash toe-merch, T-O-E-M-E-R-C-H. Les Stroud is a Canadian survival expert and a filmmaker best known as the creator, the director, the producer, the writer, the cameraman, and the host of the television series Survivor Man, which has now been uploaded to YouTube via the Survivor Man channel, and the links are in the description. At Les's heart, he's an artist, and thus we touch on what originality is, what art is and isn't, at least subjectively, and the positive and repugnant underbelly of what it feels like to have one's work mimicked. We also touch on Bigfoot experiencing orbs, and how Les's attitude has influenced my approach on not only the UFO topic, but topics that are despised in general. Click on the timestamp if you'd like to skip this intro. For those new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics dedicated to the explication of what are called theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but also delineating the possible connection consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. If you enjoy witnessing and engaging in real-time conversation with others on the topics of psychology, physics, and consciousness, then do check the description for the Theories of Everything Discord and subreddit. There's also a link to the Patreon, that is patreon.com slash if you'd like to support this channel, as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reason I'm able to do this full-time. It would be near impossible to have conversations on the topics of consciousness and loop quantum gravity and so on with such depth, if not for the sponsors and the patrons, so thank you. That link again is patreon.com slash With regard to sponsors, there are two. The first sponsor is Algo. Algo is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce return and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI, headed by a bright individual by the name of Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since near its inception. Additionally, Amjad has a podcast on artificial intelligence and consciousness, so if you'd like to support this channel, that is Theories of Everything, then do visit his channel, which is in the description, and subscribe to him, as doing so helps this. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of mathematics, science, and engineering through bite-sized interactive learning experiences. Now, Brilliant's courses explore the laws that shape our world, elevating math and science, 
from something to be feared to a delightful experience of guided discovery. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is based upon or has local symmetries of U1, SU2, and SU3. Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that is T-O-E, for 20% off the annual subscription, and I would recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. Give it at least four lessons, and I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can comprehend subjects you previously had a difficult time grokking. Thank you, and enjoy this digressive conversation with Les Stroud. Do you mind giving the audience an overview of your Survivor Man series and then how it led up to the Bigfoot series. Yeah, years old. I mean, if you think about it, Survivor Man started. Uh, so here's the here's the overview. I guess that Survivor Man started for me in the year 2000, even 1999, because that's when I pitched it. And 2000 is when I did the uh, first um, pilot version for it. And then 2001, I did the second pilot. And 2002 or three is when I launched it into a full series called Survivor Man. So it predated all of the. I mean, basically it. It was the zeitgeist for um, the genre known as survival TV. And I know that sounds like a horrible boast to make myself, but history would bear me out on that. Um, Without Survivor Man, you don't get uh, Naked and Afraid, you don't get Alone, you don't get Man vs. Wild, you don't get any of these other shows without Survivor Man having sort of been there first. And I can also say that, you know, uh, case in point is that uh, nobody wanted Survivor Man when I first tried to pitch it. And not nobody. Uh, uh, it took a while before I found somebody who gave me the opportunity. In fact, I was told on one occasion, no one, this is from a, this is a quote from a network executive. No one will ever want to watch people surviving on television. That was a quote, right? So, and I said, no, I think you're wrong. And of course now look what we have, you know? Um, and so really Survivor Man then, you know, continued on Um all through the 2000s uh, for a good 18 years, really. Now, along the way, when the uh, you said what led up to Survivor Man Bigfoot, so to fast forward to that situation is that eventually at some point I got, you know, a bit tired of it. I was looking for um, variety in my work. I, I love variety. I love, I don't want to do the same thing all the time. And at the same time, also they, the shows that came out, started copying what I was doing. Of course, they couldn't actually do it. Let's be clear about that. They were not actually surviving. None of them were, um, with the exception of now Alone, but Alone is also very produced in the edit suite. So you're not getting the story that actually happened. So no one, even to this date, has ever done what, what I did with Survivor Man, and that was actually survive and actually film. But the problem with that is I couldn't deliver a lot of episodes. too hard on me. So then they came along and they wanted they wanted to have more and more episodes, more and more episodes. So they just basically started up with Bear Grylls and all the rest of them. Well, seeing that, I wanted, you know, I said, look, I want to go off into some other directions. I did I did Beyond Survival, which was my series uh, going out and, and surviving with Indigenous cultures and taking part in all kinds of ceremonies. So that was still to date my the best work I think I've ever done. And then the Bigfoot thing happened because... Normally, I try to work creatively on things that come out of my own brain. So it's not all, not already out there. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm inventing something. But every once in a while, I do adopt the Richard Branson version, which is basically build a better mousetrap. When I saw what Finding Bigfoot did, I just thought, no, they blew it. They completely screwed that entirely. And it could be so much more potent than what they did. So I created Survive Man Bigfoot. There. It's hard to ask me a quick a question about something that happened over 20 years and have me answer it in one sentence, that's for sure. Totally fine. Okay, and so what was Survivor Man Bigfoot Edition? So Survivor Man Bigfoot Edition was basically me producing what ended up being a 10-part, now an 11-part, I did an additional one, uh, documentary series 
uh, exploring the phenomenon called Sasquatch, called Bigfoot. And so I would go out and, and place myself in, in these various situations, not, not, not as an, in a sensational way, not, not in a campy way, not even in a, and certainly not in a scripted way, but you know, your uncle would say, no, I, I've seen one. I've seen them a couple of times. They do come through my valley in my backyard. And I'd say, okay, do you mind if I camp in the valley in your backyard? And then let's see what can, I, I want to see what's possible here. And that's, it was going in as a skeptic uh, with eyes wide open and a, a very open-minded skeptic. And then filming what I thought were, were solid and strong documentaries on the phenomenon. That's all it was, really. Yeah, I've unconsciously modeled myself after you. And I have, well, the channel has a great deal to owe to you. Because much like yourself, where you didn't go in with too much credulity nor dismissal, you were playing the middle ground. I, too, have done that when it comes to the UFO topic, where I'm not believing whatever is told to me. But I'm also not dismissing it just because it's it sounds outlandish. And I think a part of your appeal is that you're not a cryptozoologist, similar like I'm not a ufologist. And so people actually like that, that someone from the outside is going in and investigating this. Well, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's been my, my, huh, my, I don't know, it's certainly not a shtick and it's certainly not a gimmick, but it's my thing and always has been all the way along. Look, I didn't come out of a privileged background. Um, other than my, maybe my skin color. I didn't come out of a privileged background. My background was very low income. There were gangs in the neighborhood, lots of drugs, a dysfunctional family. So um, I came, you know, I came from a, a, an alcoholic background. Um, I've had my own issues, you know, when I was younger. So I have all that in my background. What does that mean? It means that I'm not that guru guy for survival. I'm not that TV celebrity for my face on camera. I'm just a person who used to load boxes on the crates in warehouses as a job. You know, I came from many blue collar jobs and that's that all of that kind of background. And it means, am I relatable? I suppose if you were, you would say I'm relatable, but why, why am I relatable? Because I'm just like you. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, but here's the difference. The difference and the chasm that I place between myself and say my past is that I seek to find a life that is filled with edifying components that that I'm trying to expand my brain I'm trying to correct to connect the synapses the synapses synapse in my brain I'm trying to make new connections I'm trying to be smarter I'm trying to learn you know when someone corrects me on my grammar I'm one of the few people that will not get mad about that I'm like oh my god I'm saying that wrong thank you for telling me you know um you know and I, I seek to learn from larger minds so if I approach a subject matter that is seemingly in the genre of like that's oh that's for like I you see. know, rednecks down in Alabama who likes Sasquatch. Well, no, I'm going to say no. Let's let's give them some credibility here. Let's sure. You know, it, it seems you know what, what, that it, like it, it should be relegated to people with nothing more to do with their time than sit around and read conspiracy series or talk about Bigfoot. But it but if you can elevate certain things to a place of respectability where you can actually research them, you know, that's that's been my goal. And so, look, I, I've 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 hung out, let's say, and lived and grew up with enough of the other part of society that I am the other part of society. Mm. But I also seek to be the, <laughs> the very successful side as well. 
Uh, what do you mean? Whether my filmmaking. Well, I mean, well, this is a, this is a, not a conversation we were planning on getting into, but I will say that I just knew there was always going to be something better for me. Yes, I did. Yes, I did say to myself at 20 years of age, I know I'm better than this. Ah. And that was, didn't mean I'm better than them or better than you. I just knew I was better than this, this shitty alcohol strewn cigarette smoking life I'm living. I'm better than this. And I just always knew it. And so I, I've always uh, sought to, to achieve something. It took me till I was 45, you know? So case in point. When did Survivor Man, the first episode, come out? I mean, how old were you when it first came out? So the pilot, and here's a great way that you ask that, because the pilot was when I was around um, 40 years of age. Wow. And I was 42, I think, when I landed the series. Jeez. I was now on air for four more years. So now I'm 46, right? I've been on air with television, on television with Survivor Man for four years. I'm, I'm now an international TV celebrity. I'm doing interviews. I'm on Jimmy Fallon and Ellen, and I'm still making at the age of 45, $46,000 per year. That's my take-home revenue. When I was 45 years old, I'd already been a TV celebrity. I'm already there. I made it with survivement. Yet I was still only making about $46,000 a year. The next year is when, I, for the first time in my life, I broke the poverty line. So I'm, now I'm a man of 46 years of age. I have two children at home and a wife that doesn't work. And at 46 years of age, because of Survivor, and it was the first time I ever broke the poverty line. All of that goes back to saying that, you see, that's where I come from. So I'm not a highfalutin, you know, uh, I'm not a, I was not a dancing monkey <clears throat> like Mr. Grills wanted to be. I was not a TV star like all, so many reality people want to be. Yeah. Just a guy from a neighborhood with an inquisitive mind and hopefully some some quotient of talent. I don't know if that's true or not, but and I just never left my, let myself stop. You mentioned this monkey aspect. And when I think about celebrities, like I was watching the Met Gala and I was seeing Billie Eilish, if that's how you pronounce her name, and a few of the other celebrities. And then the paparazzi were saying, turn here, turn here, Billie, turn here. And then she turns and then over here, over here. And it just made me think, oh my gosh, do you not feel like a monkey? I wonder how much they feel like they're just being pulled and prod like a puppet. And you mentioned that you don't, you don't want to be like that. Did you ever feel like you were being pulled in that direction? Oh, I was, I was very often, let's let, they attempted very often to pull me in that direction. And, uh, you know, I was very much a fish out of water. When I was down in Los Angeles, let's say, do Jimmy, doing Jimmy Fallon, and then the next day going on some other interview radio thing, and maybe, you know, the next week on Ellen or something like that. That, that I always thought that paparazzi Hollywood celebrity lifestyle, to me, I'm just a guy from Canada, man. And, and it was just, I always felt so outside watching it, thinking, oh, my God. And you look in the vacant eyes of the paparazzi or the person asking you the interview sometimes you get beautiful people interviewing you but a lot of times they're, they're they're on a treadmill of what they think they're supposed to ask you and and so these billy maybe not her but but these different people who they you stop and you pose i walked the runway a few times i rocked the, walked the red carpet and i remember being told hey turn over here last turn and i 
did it, I think, twice just to get through the, it's like, well, it was the only way in. <laughs> I had to go along that carpet. I mean, one time I literally snuck behind everybody and just kept going. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I wasn't big enough, a big enough star that who, nobody cared. You know, if I Brad, you know, Brad Pitt, they would have stopped. Of course. So it's when you achieve a certain level, you know, I've always said jokingly, but not that I'm, I'm just a C, C celebrity. I think for a brief moment in time, I achieved B-level status, maybe B-minus status as a celebrity for a brief okay. moment in time. And as I got closer, as I saw that, I just thought, this is not me. I, I just, I'm not this, you know. I'm a creator. I'm a, I, 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 I believe myself to be an artist. A me- mediocre one, I will say self-effacingly, yes, but I still have always believed that somewhere inside me is an artist, and that's what I try to be. Not There's a big difference between being an artist and a celebrity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. When I'm looking at some of your new series, you have this Les Stroud's Wild Harvest and and you have a podcast series and you have I think another series coming up or out. So what's driving this? I assume it's not money. You said that your creative person is it pure creativity? There's more than that. This yes is the short answer. Because I desire to be creative, but not only that, I desire to be a prolific creative person, a prolific creator. I've always admired artists like David Bowie, Frank Zappa, you know, uh, anybody. I mean, back in the day, people used to do uh, albums, four, two, three, four albums a year. Then, you know, so I just love, I just love an artist who's prolific. That's number one that's driving me. Number two is 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 the is my my need to feel relevant. Uh, when I say relevant, let's be careful about that. How about my need to produce works that matter, which I'm sure sits on the shoulders of me hoping to matter myself as a deeper level, but producing works is what I do. And I so if I, I just cannot produce fluff that's not to say i haven't produced shitty work i probably have but i try not to and, and I, I i just can't i'll give you a quick story i was on the telephone with a producer one time and we were brainstorming ideas and i said oh i've got this one idea and i and i said oh but you know i mean i mean we could knock it out of the park in in just like three months and it'd be i know we would make a lot of money with this but uh, that's kind of why I don't want to do it. I want to work on this other stuff over here that's more challenging. And she started laughing. She goes, oh my God, Les, that is so like you. You just told me you've got a project that you could do quickly and it would be worth a ton of money. And that's why you don't want to do it. Mm. And she was laughing at me, but it's like, yes, that's why I don't want to do it. I want the challenge, you know. I like to do stuff that inspires other people, not just entertains. You mentioned that personally you may feel this sense of mattering or this lack of sense of mattering to the world. And partly what you do is driven by that. I'm curious if when you visit the wilderness, do you think there's that drive? Because when you're in the city, you're one among a million or millions. And then when you're in the wilderness, there's this calm, there's a sense that you matter just as much as anyone else. Is that a motivator there? No, actually, it's not a motivator at all. I'll tell you why, and the answer might surprise you. Firstly, in the city, uh, there is much more pressure to matter around people. There's much more pressure to matter, I think. Uh, or in my opinion, I'd come across as being quite selfish in my existence. 
But when I get out into nature, when I'm in the wilderness, I, I, I don't matter in the most wonderful way. Mm-hmm. I've never been asked that question before, and that seems like a funny way to answer it. I, out in nature, I just don't matter anymore, and it's absolutely wonderful. And so that's why wilderness and nature will always be my escape. You know, that's my, my safe place. Do you ever get into altered states while you're in the wild? Not because you've ingested something, but because of the experience itself. Let's say it's meditative. <laughs> well, or perhaps maybe because mm-hmm. I've ingested something. But, um, we can talk uh, about that yes. later. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Altered states as deep uh, as when I in- invoke the use of, say, plant medicine or something like that. No, not, not as deep. But I blame my own personality for that. I'm a stu- I can have a bit of a stubborn... Uh, angle to me and so I've never truly really gone into great altered states through meditation I know that it's incredibly valuable and many people can I've tried for many years I'm sure a a teacher's out there going I could show you how to get into an altered state I get it I totally get it Um, no I think my altered state in nature is more of a gentle one where I just feel at peace so see to me rather than practicing a technique of meditating while in nature I'm just allowing myself to be in nature. And that is the meditation, mm-hmm. what, if you will. What is it? You said that there's some stubbornness that prevents you from using meditation to get to an altered state. What do you mean by that? I don't know. Um, maybe it's like you started asking questions about filming Bigfoot. And I said, you know, I like to go in as a very open-minded skeptic. Um, my, 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 I mean, through any seeking I've done spiritually in my life, uh, the prayer side of that, and the meditative side of that has never been one that truly affected me. The people who have that affect them all the time say, oh, you're just not fully giving over. You're just not. No, that's mm. not it. Mm. You know, it's like, that's you, great. It affects you. Great. But I've tried very hard. And it's just not. And that's why eventually later on in life, when I went down the road of, of working with plant medicines, that broke through in a massive way, indefinitely life-changing way. So, so meditation and I, we're not a, a perfect fit. And now let's be careful on this. See, the thing is, people can listen to motivational speakers or spiritual speakers. A lot of times what those speakers forget yeah. is that we all have these much different personalities. And a speaker often speaks to you like you should have their personality, right? All the type A's, the, the Tim Ferriss's and the Tony Robbins of this world speak to you like, here's what I do. And every morning I get up and I have my journal and this is what you've got to do. You really want to be a success? Just let's go. Can I, can I, you know, can I get an amen? Yeah, right? Cold and shower. I'm like, you know, well, I do do the cold showers, but that's it. I'm, I, I like the feeling. I, I, I recognize that, for example, I'm a multitasker. I cannot be of a singular mind. I cannot be singularly focused. And I'm 60 years old this year. I bloody well know my own personality. Don't tell me that that's my best way to go because you know what? I'm better when I multitask. And whenever time I say that in a room, you should see the people go, thank God he said that. Oh, thank... People thank me for saying... Because they feel pressure. Okay. Yes, because they feel pressure from the other... I'm not a motor From the unitaskers. Yes. And that's not me. Never will be me. Yeah, you mentioned cold showers. Wim Hof, have you followed him at all? Do you find any of his practices useful? I, I did my breathing this morning. Um, however, I gotta, I'd love to ask him about this. And I, I saw it in a FAQ. 
But I was doing the Wim Hof method very successfully, really enjoying it. And then one morning while doing it, like just like that, I got hit with tinnitus and I've had it ever since. Then I che- then I, I checked the, his FAQs and people have been asking about tinnitus after the Wim Hof method. And it says, don't worry about it, it goes away. Well, guess what? It hasn't gone away. Okay. And now 60 years of age, I just for the first time in my life have tinnitus. So if anybody's into Wim Hof, yes, it's brilliant. Yes, the cold showers are brilliant. And I, his meditation teaching is probably great, though I haven't gone down that road. But the, the breathing it, in me, do I know it caused it? Well, let me say that it it happened, bam, right in the middle of doing the breathing. So as far as I'm concerned, I stirred something there. And yeah, yeah, I don't want to diss the Wim Hof method. Believe me, if you haven't heard, if people listening haven't heard of it, it's brilliant. And I, I like the cold shower thing. It really does zip me up. I But that happened to me. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm venting a little on that because it's, Unfortunate because I really enjoy the breathing. Whenever I do the Wim Hof exercise, if I'm doing it properly around the second or third time that I hold my breath, then I get some tinnitus, but it goes away after about a minute. My, or so. Mine didn't go away. Did you ever have temporary tinnitus, or you just had only permanent tinnitus? It just kicked in and never left. Kicked in once and never left. Oh boy! And I've never had it in my life. So you know, I might. I funny, funny you ask because I actually did the method very brief. I just did a short version of the method this morning, first time in about three months, because my ears have calmed down. You know, and, and that's back. Oh boy, I'm sorry about that. Okay, yeah. when it comes to filmmaking, you know, people who aren't filmmakers don't realize how. Let's say when I watch a movie, I notice plenty of what they don't do than what they do. So what I mean by that is that they chose not to show a shot reverse shot, that they chose to have it at two shots, at a two shot. And to me, I'm like, okay, that's an interesting choice. Most people notice the presence of something, not the absence of something. And in yours, I remember you talking about you didn't want to include so-and-so element in Survivor Man. What's some of what you could have chosen to include that you chose to exclude? And why? Well, first of all, all of the cliches of television filmmaking. So all of the cliches that other producers rely on as a crutch to make up for the content they didn't get. So uh, I, I so so the coming up next moment and the here's what you missed before the commercial moments. All of that is a device. It's a device that just basically says, oh, you don't have enough content to fill an extra 60 seconds. So you're going to do 15 seconds before and after every commercial to fill up that time in your show. That's what I really think is being said there. I think it's a cheat. Um, certainly um, within the f- filming of Survivor Man, there's two levels here, right? There's the filming and then there's the editing, two different worlds. And in both cases, Survivor Man enabled or, or rather demanded of me that I do things that no one else had ever done because of necessity the necessity was there's nobody else there. I'm alone. Uh, and so I was doing things with the camera that if you watch in history, I can, I can as a brag say, I was the first person to do that. There's about six things that I was the first person to do. I did them out of necessity because nobody was, else was there with me. Other shows picked up for stylistic look as if they are alone, but really there's a whole freaking crew there. So they don't can you give me an example to do that. Well, for example, um, uh, uh, walking across a field. I'll set up a camera at the halfway point. I'll walk across the field. Now, my editor would pick up on that because, again, in the edit suite, he's working now with footage that is not shot like any other show. So now he has to do new editing techniques. 
And here you would see, so I would come in, and I know you can see me, so I would come into frame, and yes. then, then it would be like, I would disappear, but I would show up in the middle frame, then I would disappear, I'd show up at the end frame. Uh -huh. Well, I had to do that because I did not have a camera person following me and panning me. Everybody else can just follow and pan. They're out there with a the big ah, crew. I see what but you're they saying. set it up and they do it anyway so to make it shot. look like, give you that illusion that, oh, he's alone, you know. No, he's not alone at all. He's got a crew of six people with him. Mm -hmm. Right? Whereas mine was necessity. Or how about the selfie? If I patented the selfie, I'd be ah. a rich man today. I mean, when I did the selfie in Survivor Man, no one, we didn't even have iPhones when I started that. And, and so there I was holding a camera on myself that had never been seen before, ever, until Survivor Man. And now it's ubiquitous. Right. So and I could go on. I mean, that's that was one of the beauties and the things I loved about the filmmaking side of this was I was tasked with inventing methods that would work for a person who's alone for seven days filming himself. Lots of things I had to develop. My editor, likewise, had to come up with ways of editing footage shot that way. And you sit back and look at our show. And everything else that was on TV in 2004. And we're doing all kinds of stuff nobody else is doing. And then by 2008, everybody else is doing it. And they're not alone. That's the funny part. Does a part of you feel resentful about that? Or do you feel flattered? Uh, uh, that, no, no, there's what I feel resentful about is, is having my, my, my um, format ripped off by the networks. Absolutely. I'm uh, very, like, screw them. They, they written me off. I, should, I was asked if I wanted to sue them. Oh, yes. They were still airing my other works. So I was like, it's like suing your mom. I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Let it go. And no one's ever won a format lawsuit, by the way. So no, I'm not going to sue them. So I resent, I'm resentful about that. But the other stuff that we we're just talking about, oh gosh, no, that makes me prouder than punch to look at something and go, and not arrogantly, just, you know, just like, I know where that came from. Yeah, you left you your know, mark. Just to see that, exactly. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. There was one, the, a very proud moment for me. I was, uh, talking with a, um, a Discovery producer who actually was the head of produ productions for Discovery. And we were over there talking. He goes, you know, Les? He goes, and I, I hadn't seen him in a long time. He goes, I got to tell you something. He goes, your series, Beyond Survival, is in my opinion, the best documentary series that Discovery Channel's ever aired. And he, he said, I use that series to teach my field shooters how to film and my editors how to edit. And then he started quoting the classical editors and filmmakers that my editor was influenced by, like, oh, he studied, you know, Hossenfeimer from the from the seven from the from the forties and like stuff like that. And and he was right actually, because my editor is Barry Farrell's brilliant man was was very schooled, you know. So our craft that came out of necessity, myself in the field and Barry in the editing suite, that craft has been um the people who know, no. You know, they they get it, they go, okay, you know. And again, it sounds like a brag coming out of me, but hell, it happened and history bears me out. And I'm, I'm prouder than punched when I see stuff. If it's, if it's man versus wild, which was a direct ripoff, no, that stuff is just like, you idiots. You had a crew. You didn't have to do any of that stuff. You dorks. You're just trying to look like Survivor Man. You know, that's, that was, but we're going back 15 years to get that feeling. <laughs> it's still there because you asked me about it. But by the same token, that's like 15 years ago when I was pissed off at them. I mean, I'm not pissed off at all anymore. What's that ratio, the ratio of filmed footage to what actually airs? And I'm sure it's changed over the year. Has it changed, first of all? Well, it has loosely, but if it's done right, um, it really follows the classic example. Years ago, National Geographic was the bar. They were the ones who put out the bar and the standard on lots of different things, including ethics and filming. It was very interesting. 
And you used to always say, well, what does Nat Geo say about it? Oh, they say this. That's, that's gone. That's blown out of, out of the water. They, their filmmakers have no accountability for ethics whatsoever anymore. They don't give a crap. They're just doing reality TV. And that includes Nat Geo Wild and all the rest of them. But years ago, they were the standard, right? And the standard years ago was for a documentary film was 40 to 1, 40 hours to a one-hour documentary. And I got to say it, I pretty much held to that. Sometimes I was 60 to 1 sometimes maybe 35 to one, but I always hovered around that 40 to one. And, 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 you know, filmmakers, if there are you know, filmmakers listening to this right now, especially younger filmmakers, when I say younger, I mean, in your thirties, you know, even in your forties, um, is that craft really matters. It really does matter. Just being, you know, as a friend of mine says, just cause you know how to run the software, it doesn't mean you're an editor, you know, and just because you can cut something doesn't mean you know how to tell a story. Um, so 40 to one, is about where I hover, to answer your question more succinctly. Why is it that you emphasize that craft matters? See, it seems obvious, but it sounds like what's underneath that is that you believe, or that there is this trend of that craft doesn't matter. Now, when I was speaking with Jonathan Blow, he's a video game designer, he was saying, hey, Kurt, right now there's this, the ethos in the industry is that skill matters less and less. He's citing contemporary art when he says that if you go to an art gallery, contemporary art, it's more about the statement that the artist is making rather than the craft behind it. If you look at a Renaissance painting, it just makes you, well, you're in tears looking at how much artistry went into it. So is that behind what you're saying when you say, look, craft matters, or is it something else? I think that it's a shame if the bar is lowered. I think that while it may seem to have a place, Delivering pablum to the masses is a shame and a sin. I think elevating people, enabling them to elevate themselves through having the kind of craft that enables you to elevate your own storytelling, your own art, then in process elevates them. You just gave me the perfect example of looking at, you know, uh, a Renoir, you know, uh, or a Picasso. A serious craft there. Today, you know, I'll give you the alternative example. We heard the story recently about the whole um, fans only thing uh, and, and how, um, you know, it's like a semi pornish kind of site and how uh, that people were making lots of money. And this woman who was once a nurse was, well, in the article, she called herself a content creator. Technically speaking, she's correct, I suppose, but do not conflate content creator and producer uh, and, and, and artists anymore. And that's what's happening is we're conflating artists with content creators by having a woman who made, who's making $250,000 a month doing what? Pictures of her T and A. That's content creation now. I've been in this, doing this for 30 years and I'm up against a woman showing pictures of her T and A and then in an article stating, stating, I'm a content creator and I have a right to blah, blah, blah. No. The, the, so I don't want to, so I, it's coming from, I don't want to see the bar, TikTok and YouTube clips and Instagram stuff. And the bar comes down. I'm, hey, I'm not against entertainment, you know. I'm really not against a chuckle and a laugh. And I'm not against lowbrow entertainment even. That's fine. But don't, you know, what, what is it? <laughs> don't, don't piss on my back and tell me it's raining. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, you're not a content creator. 
Um, so I'm, I'm actually going to have to, I'm going to have to relinquish that term because I'm, I'm losing that battle. So fine, you're a content creator, but you're not an artist. You're not a film producer. You're not a storyteller. You're not even really a creator, capital C. Don't, don't, don't do a TikTok video of you punching your brother in the nuts and call it art, you know? So I'm, I'm not up against that, but I am kind of up against it because I'm still putting stuff out, you know? I want to ask you a specific filmmaking question. Yeah, yeah, please. That's, that's, that's why I'm here. They're great. In one of your Survivor Man series, at times, you would cut in, you would put the black bars. Now, it's already a low-resolution show in the sense that it's 480p in 2004, 2005, and so on. And I'm wondering, and I have a specific clip here. Just as a filmmaker, I'm interested. Why did you choose to put... Yeah, I have it here. Can I just link it to you so that you... Can you show it to me? Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm getting an ad, of course. That's it. It's your own doing. You make a couple of cents right there. Ah, that's funny. Hang on, let me turn that off. Let me turn that off. Let me go there. No, actually, you're highlighting a um, a glitch in the uploading to YouTube. That's all that is. That was ah. supposed to be fixed. That's nothing more than, than a glitch. It was supposed to be fixed. You see, even after all these years and 30 years of filmmaking and everything else, stuff gets done, and then you come back and look and you go, what? why is that there? And you go, and then you call, hey, Luke, why, why is it? Oh, that's a glitch. Sorry, man. Okay, can you re-upload it, please? That's just something that needs to be fixed. Yeah, I, was, but, I thought but, was there's this artistic choice. There's a reason. Because I've seen no, it in that, more than that one place. Huge, I know. And it has... How the heck is that a glitch? I, well, still, to this... Okay, recently I was working with um, Team Rubicon in, in cleaning up at Hurricane Ida. And I was with the four filmmakers there, the media team. And, and it was a lot of fun because they were all young and they, they did listen to things I had to say, which was fun for me. But right in the end there... The guy delivered the final cut we were working on for that week. And he said, oh, I'll shoot it over to you, Les. Now, I could have said, fine, I'll watch it when I get back to the hotel. Right? But I was sitting right there and I said, oh, I'm going to put it on now. I watched it. Absolute, total, big, faux pas audio glitch. He completely missed and it would have gone edited, gone up to YouTube. right? And I said, John, is that supposed to be like that? And he goes, what do you mean? And he looks and he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> then he's like, because he'd already uploaded it to YouTube. So, you know, hey, yeah, we all make mistakes as well as the short answer there. But, um, but that, I'll tell you another story on that. You know, we'll go back to this whole thing about content creators and artists and so on. So I, I, am, I also was working with an individual and we had a lot of broadcast delivery to do and he'd never done broadcast delivery before. Okay. And it was a year of conflict because he had been used to only uploading to online uh. under his own control. No broadcast delivery. Well, you've got to understand... When you go pro, you know, there is a difference between uploading to Vimeo and, and, and sending your work to Discovery Channel. And filmmakers need to understand that. Just because you could be a YouTube star. When you go to deliver to A&E or Discovery Channel or National Geographic, you better bloody well have every frame in the right spot, every color, every audio. It's very specific and very detailed and a, very tedious uh, and a lot of hard work. And I think a lot of filmmakers don't understand how intense delivery to a broadcast network, like my deliveries right now to PBS uh, stations, uh, American Public Television for the Wild Harvest series. You know, that's all, there's there's a whole, the, the specs, there's three sheets of specs. And you have to be bang on on every single one of those specs because they're giving you money. And it's important. No, I was going to say, this is, this is vital. 
Personally, I find it annoying because there's no creativity there. What I've done, because I have a documentary that I gave to iTunes, I used a distributor and then they take care of that. And then they send me back these pages of notes. Why is it that in this frame, there's a small black line over here? Why is it that the audio does so and so it peaks over here? Well, peaking is, is a simple issue to fix. So I find it annoying. Is there artistry in that, in meeting the the distributor's requirements? No, there's, no, well, the, the, two ways to answer that. If the glitches are real glitches. You want them to be known. You want well, to solve shame them. Shame on you. They got to be fixed. I, I, I've never, in all my years with Discovery Channel, I never delivered a show with glitches. Uh, because we, no way, we would not. Um, this recent round of deliveries, there was a whole bunch. And that's what I was saying. I was working with an individual who wasn't familiar. Because with Vimeo or YouTube, eh, eh, right? eh, it's like that. And eh, just put it, just upload it. It's fine. It's not fine when somebody on quality control on the other end is looking. Um, the, this is different from notes on your content. Those are, that's a whole different level of interaction with the networks when they're picking apart your work. And they're giving you creative notes. And for people who can't see this, I'm doing air quotes around creative. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I, I don't think the tech specs hurt the artistry at all. Though That's, you know, deliver it, deliver it right. It's going to a network, which I think people should follow. So this stuff I just did with Team Rubicon, we're, we're, we're uploading that to uh, only to social media. But I went in and I, and, I, and I remember saying, hey, John, you know, the handle on this little shot, you should, mm, the handle's a bit long. You see me getting ready to talk. You don't see me talking. And John said, oh, yeah, took it out and go, now, doesn't that smoother? Yeah, it's way smoother, right? So the, there is a craft in there, you know, you know, craft. My editor will, will my Barry Farrell will often say, like, you know, if you see that an editor has done a cut on a blink, so, that, so the person on camera has blinked, that's a self-taught cutter. That's not an, that's someone who does not know the craft, you know. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. What are some of the techniques you use to make your footage or your episode more engaging when there was a lack of, let's say, engaging activities on screen? Well, engaging is an interesting word. Story, story, story. You know, you hear that content is king. Story will always be king. So that's mainly done during the editing. No, no, this, no, no, no. This is this is me filming in the field. You know, I have see. You know, good in, good out, bad in, bad out. If I deliver my editor crap, he's got nothing. It doesn't matter how good of an editor he is. Now, not enough shows think that one through because they take crap from their field and they just edit it any old way they want, you know, um, my guy had to, had to edit really intense stories, but I had to bring him intense stories. So, you know, one of my ways was to make sure I brought him a very strong story. So, so that's now, now, but to answer your question, I'm in the field. So let's go there. I'm in the field and I'm lacking in content. Let's say I'm lacking. I have to really, there's two things I did. One is I have to either rack my brain to think, what can I pull out of this area, this next thing? What have I got here? Where's my story here? And sometimes I would just start filming stuff because you never know. The other side of it is I would go in, I'm going to go in the desert today, let's say. And I would have a, 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 a list of things that I know I want to capture for this particular story I'm going to tell. Well, it's the desert. I should tell a story about eating strawberry pincushion uh, mm-hmm. cactus fruits. Okay. But the problem is in my situation, if it's day three and I haven't been eating, I forget. So I pull out a crumpled old piece of paper out of my pocket. And say, oh yeah. Pincushion fruit. Oh yeah. Okay. I got to film that. I'll go in. Now I go and I film it. So I keep myself on track with a short list of don't forget to film this kind of list. And I also, you know, and then I'm, maybe I just have a good eye for looking around going, okay, well, there's a little bit of story just in this next moment right here. Let's capture this. Now, what's the difference between a story and just filming an event? So, for example, that strawberry pincushion. If it's written on a paper as a bullet point, you say, film myself eating strawberry and finding strawberry pincushion. Okay. Is that the story? Or do you somehow add some elements around that to make it a story? How do you take an event make it a story, essentially? I think what I do is I say, oh, well, what's the story? First of all, it's... This guy, the guy happens to be me, and he's going to do this thing. Okay, the big one for me would be how. How is he going to do this thing? 
What are the hows that I can answer? The first how is how do you find these bloody things? Okay. Second how is all right. How do you how do you harvest these things? Do you, you know? Okay. Now, there's two ways to harvest it. Which one looks the best for camera? Because you want things to look great on camera. I could just bend over and pick up a pin cushion cherry, right? Or I could get down on all fours. I could talk about avoiding rattlesnakes. I could talk about avoiding the spines of the cactus. I could show a tricky little method for being able to use a pair of tongs to pull off the, 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 the fruit rather than getting your fingers stuck. All of both situations, I'm just picking a cherry off of a bush. Uh, I'm just, I'm, forget that it's a cactus thing, but you know, in both situations, I'm doing one thing, I'm picking something. But one situation, I bend over and pick. The other one, I've just given you three pieces of information over how to do it. That's how, that's how I get the story in something. What's the how? How is this all going, take, going down? What are the nuances that nobody at home would ever guess on their own, of their own accord? You know, what do I need them to know? Fill them in. Fill them in. Tell them. It's all interesting. And what isn't inter interesting, you, you can pull from the edit, you know. But fill it, fill them, fill in the story. Some people will be wondering, well, what the heck does this have to do with theories of everything? Now, as you know, theories of everything have to do with physics, it's gravity, and then there's the standard model, how do you unify them? But it's also like what are the fundamental laws that govern us? So consciousness may have a role to play. And if someone was to ask you, what does what you do have to do with the theory of everything? How would you answer that? No. Look, here's one way. Theory of everything has the word everything. So no matter what, if I'm drinking tea, it's technically theory of everything. But is there some other way? So the way that I position theories of everything. So theories of everything is an investigation into theoretical physics, free will, consciousness, and God. Because I see those as intimately tied. Okay, using that as your jumping off point, if someone was to ask you, okay, how the heck does what you do, maybe, maybe it's your mission, maybe it's your shows, how does it relate? Most of the time, I jokingly say I walk around in a mild form of constant existential crisis. It's almost a slight addictive habit of mine. And yet, I've learned to befriend it over the years. It doesn't stop me. It doesn't spiral me into depression or anxiety. Because if you're constantly going, what's this all about? Why? How? You can really get bogged down in the, in, in, in the muck and the mire of that. I use it to, in many ways, calm me down because we have this tug of war, this battle for our consciousness of I need to matter, I need to be relevant, I need to create, I need to be part of this big picture and what's going to happen when I die and am I really a piece of energy floating through space? Is this just simply a biological thing that my spirit and my energy have occupied at this moment? We have all of that versus I'd really like that piece of cheesecake. And... I've been in between those for so long in my life when I'm really frustrated, it bothers me to be in between because 
why am I so dumb that I just really want this piece of cheesecake? And yet over here, I'm thinking about God. And so I've been able to let go of my existential crises when they are detrimental to my own step forward and say, look, I am this physical being. All I really have, and that's even wrong there, I was going to say all I really have is this flesh and this blood, these muscles, this brain, but of course, I'm happy to say that I'm quite certain we could do so much more with the energy of our minds uh, were we to be a little more advanced and a little more skilled. That in the end, I try to bring it back to, now here's where it's going to sound almost woohoo but I still think in the end that expressing love and not hating, express giving and not just taking. All I know is that my concept of the ethers and the great grand, grand beyond and God and spirit and energy and life force feels like it lands in a proper place if I am not being selfish, if I am not all about myself, and, and which I can be very easily. And so my work moving forward, I believe, has to somehow fall into that same place that my reasoning is falling into, which is, yeah, yeah, of course there is something greater here. Of course there is a, 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 an energy that is part of all things. And it's whether people name it or orthodox it or box it up or not, it's not the point. That it's, as far as I'm concerned, there's that, yes, there is the biological sludge that came from the swamps. Of, so, so sure, I will not, I, I do not feel that I'm just biological because if that was true, I wouldn't give a crap about anything. So it, 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 it brackets what I do because it causes me to say, okay, if I'm going to create something, it's got to mean something. It's got to give. It's got to be from love, if you will. Um, have I ever done things just for money? On occasion I have, sure, because I needed money. But I'm not in that place anymore. So now, so it's, yes, how does it govern? It governs by reminding me how big everything is. But my touch, this goes back to our first convert part of the conversation. But my, but my touchstone with everybody watching is that I still want to have that piece of cheesecake, mm. regardless of this bigger thinking. No matter how big our thoughts are, I still want to go home and be with my wife and have a glass of wine. No matter how existentially I, I meander, you know? Why do you see that as being against what you just said? Because to me, let's say the example of wine with your wife, that's an expression of love. You're sharing a moment. Cheesecake alone, facing a wall, scarfing it down, that's, that's different. And you know, just so you know, it's not as if it's clear that that's different because some lines of thinking is that this universe is fractal-like and that these patterns repeat. So if you were to investigate any phenomenon to its utmost degree, you'd still end up with a reflection of the entire universe. And that's why some people say you can study mathematics, you can study logic. If you do it properly or do it to its extreme, you can find God. If you study even these headphones to its extreme, because it's a creation of God in a sense, it's a reflection of God, then you can find God. But then well, I would ask you then, can, can math explain then, and I'm sure it can actually, but then where does the math rest when you look at something like say having piece, a cheap piece of cheesecake while staring at the corner of a wall, that you know that in the end, it is not a positive maneuver. 
it is a a negative element. It is a it is it is an an energy that is not even instinctually in keeping with everything that's rolling on it. In fact, it's a it's a pullback to the proper outflow of love. Man, have you heard of non-dualism? Uh, I've heard of it. I couldn't explain it to you, but okay. So the non-dualist would say, I, 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 "What I have to do is I have to I have to go listen to more some Sam, more Sam Harris, and then I'll get back to you." All right. So non-dualist would say, "I don't think Sam, I don't think Sam likes non-dualism because he mm. has, he believes in morality, objective morality." So the non-dualist would say, "I'm not saying I'm a non-dualist. I'm just being a mouthpiece mm-hmm. that there is no two non-dualist. Right? There is no two. There is no up down. There's no evil. There's no good. That it's all the same. And that in it's like the atoms of the universe are love because God is love. The atoms of the universe are love. So that even in a heinous act like what Hitler did, there was love in that. I'm not saying I believe this, but certain lines of thinking would say that. Well, I watch too many Marvel movies uh, to to think that everything. I, I don't. I don't think I agree with that. I I I think that. Um, what do I know, right? But I think that hate is hate, pain is pain, anger is anger. Intent to harm is intent to harm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't see, I mean, I, I, no, I don't see where you can derive the love out of those things. I, I think they are the lack of love, you know, in many ways. And they certainly exist. We, we don't, there's no question about the examples of how they exist. But you asked me about how this, this um, questioning of everything you know, an understanding of everything, how it, it monitors my world. So what you're really asking me in many ways is what do I believe, you know? And I don't think it's a belief, by the way. I think it's more what have I studied or what do I feel uh, I've learned enough about to have at least an opinion on um, in my own life. Um, I was a seeker when I was younger. Um, I do not hold with orthodoxy or, or church orthodox uh, I'll go a step further and I feel that there is a place for it, but I believe what that is, is the kindergarten of spiritual seeking. I think it's the, a good place for people to go if they need rules and regulations and if they need rituals and traditions and if they need colorful trinket, trink, trinkets and colorful light things, then, then just like kindergarten, that's a good place to go to start, to start there, you know. Um, but I like being a seeker. I like being open and searching. And in my process now, as a sixty-year-old, still feeling like I, you know, I could listen to one podcast from a from a great thinker and go, "God, I'm an idiot." But I don't really think I'm an idiot. I I, I have felt enough that whatever the answer, here's the thing: you and I can't. Nobody's going to answer this till they die. None of us know until our till till our breaths leave this body. None of us really know, even though, regardless of altered states. Even with an altered state, you still can be certain, but not quite that certain. And then when we die, we say, oh, oh, it is. It's like this. Um, and there's plenty of stand-up com- comedy routines to have fun with that. I've seen enough to basically say that I do allow it to guide my life. I, I don't need to be in a selfish state anymore if I have over time. So that's that's how questioning everything I won't stop. I won't stop questioning everything, trying to seek the understanding of everything. I think we all, I wish we all would. What do you see as the connection between consciousness and Bigfoot? 
That's a big question. The Bigfoot phenomenon is a rabbit hole. So it's a rabbit hole covered in ice with grease poured over top of it. It's really slippery. And once you go down that rabbit hole, it leads off to a hundred other rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. So the question you ask is interesting because the journey of someone who wants, who's interested in that phenomenon starts off looking for a big hairy ape that's really smart. If you dig deep enough, you leave that school pretty quickly. It's no longer Gigantopithecus, the big hairy ape that's really smart. And instead, you start going, wait a minute. And then you keep having a whole bunch of wait a minutes with attributes, various attributes, including potential uh, um, telepathy um, and uh, uh, cloaking and all sorts of, you know, various versions of manipulating energy and so on. So I think consciousness in Bigfoot, where it lands, is first of all, nobody has a freaking clue what these are. But the phenomenon is big enough. Hundreds of years to thousands of years, hundreds of cultures, all saying the same thing, by the way, and tens of thousands of anecdotal references, including sightings. Something's there. My question is, never mind just Bigfoot. If that species is out there, and I can come back to them, what else is out there? I mean, you can't just go, okay, so there's Bigfoot. I'm going home now. Say, well, if there's Bigfoot, what else? And a lot of possibilities open up. For example, I think that the potentiality is there for this species, nicknamed Bigfoot, but for example, Sasquatch and whatever the different names it have to be a culmination of all of these attributes people talk about, which would include uh, psychic abilities, the ability of telepathy, uh, which would include cloaking abilities, which now one gentleman had a theory that I still think holds some weight. It's what if it was simply a species of intensely savant autistic individuals and their savant autism gave them such extraordinary ability of hide and seek and on top of that, a savant ability of telepathy and a savant ability, and they had the they understood how to manipulate their own energy, their own life force energy. To me, all of that's possible if we're talking about the potentiality of the human mind. But the minute you throw Bigfoot into it, oh, that's just nonsense. Exactly. Yeah. How, do you know, how do you know it's not a species that's way ahead of us? Okay, they don't compose symphonies. They don't build airplanes and cars. I get that. That doesn't mean they can't do all these other things. So I didn't really answer your question because I don't know the answer to the, to, the, to the comparison of consciousness and Bigfoot. What I'm suggesting is they, if they exist, they are in a realm of existence that we are far from grasping or understanding. And they're farther ahead than we are on certain levels, just way behind us in other levels. Why I'm asking is, less. you don't disparage the Bigfoot topic. I don't disparage the UFO topic, even though plenty of the scientific community would. And... I, I'm pretty sure I was inspired by you, <laughs> but either way. So, if, sorry for stealing that from you, stealing your own. That's okay. Ideas. Okay, either way, when I was listening to, I believe it was some of your podcasts or your commentary on some of the Bigfoot episodes before, which I'm my bone to pick with you, man, which I'm going to put as an aside right now, I'm going to tell you, that as I fall asleep, I used to listen to your shows. And, and then, right, and I have insomnia. 
and right when I'm about to fall asleep, you'd play the harmonica and I'm, and I'm just cursing you. And I'm just wishing, <laughs> man, I wish someone would timestamp when those harmonicas are so that I could yeah. start it from right after. Either way, bracket that. I was listening to you and I believe you said something like, okay, I went out into the woods, I was filming for Bigfoot. I think this was way after the series. You were filming for Bigfoot. Didn't occur. So you thought, you know, there are stories that they can hear what's going on with the cameras or sense it in some manner. So why don't I turn the cameras off? Perhaps even do some meditation exercise, which is why I brought up consciousness, some meditative exercise. And then you saw orbs. And then I think when I was listening to you, you said, I can't talk about it yet because you had just gone through that experience and you were processing it. Now, am I correct? And if I am correct, can you just reiterate to the audience correctly what I just perhaps incorrectly stated? No, that was all correct. That was uh, from the Portland episode. It was the last thing I ever filmed. Uh, it was outside of the full series, but it's on YouTube now. Yeah. What occurred? Can you talk about it now? Well, yeah, I don't mind really. It, it, it's it's not that difficult to be honest with you. But the full story, it's really it's the story of of um, the potentiality of, of of mental telepathy and this particular species. You see. When I was in Tennessee, in the episode in Tennessee, when you want to go back and watch that episode, for example, uh, and I've told this story, uh, I told it just recently on Sasqu uh, Sasquatch Odyssey, a podcast. Bottom line was that I was walking on the trail on the way out and um, never ever in, before in my life have I ever experienced any kind of psychic or telepathic phenomenon of any sort whatsoever. Um, and I wasn't high and I wasn't drunk and I wasn't tired. And, and I'm walking, I'm walking out and I just had this, powerful voice speak to me inside my head and um so much so that after the fact i actually went in to see a counselor to make sure i wasn't schizophrenic because it hit me that hard i thought i got to know what's going on here you know and the counselor reassured me that no you're far from schizophrenic don't worry about that what what you received was a gift and you should just celebrate that fact and be really aware of that and then it happened another two times and then for the Portland one that you're referencing, what happened there was, I'm not, I don't think I said this in the show, but um, first of all, I put my energy, my thought energy out there telepathically to the Sasquatch in that area that I was told were there by a woman who has a telepathic communication with them, she says. So I, I, you know, said, I, you know, I'm coming to meet you. And I did this for about a week ahead of time. And I started to, uh, I, I, at one point, feel like I was getting an answer, if you will, in my brain. Okay, fine. So now I, yeah, so now I go up there and I go out in the bush and I'm, and I'm, the orb thing had happened. And uh, later on, I'm just sleeping on the ground and I was starting to doze off and that and a little crackling fire going. And all of a sudden I felt a very warm and actually it felt a bit soft and furry. So it could have been anything, but it basically went over my ankle and flipped my ankle enough that it woke me up and I jumped up immediately. And it felt like a, a, a nice big warm hand flipping my ankle over and I jumped up immediately. I didn't see anything. Fast forward to the next morning, we're walking out. We run into the lady again. We were planning on it. Anyway, we, anyway, we see her. I did not tell her this. And she says, she called him guardian. So she's, she's given it. I was speaking with guardian and he told me that during the night he came over and touched you. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you do with that? She just, that was the next morning. She said that to me after it actually happened. And I hadn't told her. 
Mm-hmm. And those things have happened to me about four times in my life without forcing it. Lots of times, nothing happens. It's the thing to remember, too. Sometimes you tell these stories and people think, oh, shit's going on all the time. But most of the time, nothing's ever happening. These are occurrences that have happened over a number of years. I've had four telepathic experiences. Anyway, so that's what happened, though, of that particular show. And I, I don't think I, I, at the time, was ready to talk about that on camera. And I didn't mention it. Because if I mention it, people go, he's losing it, right? And I'm like, screw you fear guys. Fear of ridicule. Yeah. Not so much fearing ridicule. No, it's not the ridicule I fear. It's their inability to handle the full story. And yes, I'm belittling them when I say that. Yes, I sound a little condescending when I say that. But screw them. If I just say, hey, yeah, Bigfoot, talk to me. <laughs> All the chuckles start. It's like, okay, you know what? But I could say that to a lot of people that go, really? Tell me what happened. That's the person I like to share with. Okay. Is okay. So let's say a week prior to you going out and experiencing that orb, you were doing some exercises where you were trying to contact Bigfoot via intention and meditating, something like that. More via psychic outreach, like specifically speaking. So I've done it several times, and and nothing's ever happened. But a couple of times I have gotten an answer. One time it was actually rather quite funny. Um, I would go on a hike. So if people are wondering how to do this, I mean, I would go on a hike and I would just, if I want an interaction, I will just put it out there. I'll just say, you know, I'm coming out. I'm going to be hiking in an area, you know, don't know if anybody's even there, but if someone is there, I would be welcoming in love to have some kind of interaction. And then often it's like, and nothing. Okay. And I just go, I just go hiking. One time though, bam, in the middle of my head, all I got was, no thanks, we're sleeping. I mean, it's just the craziest thing. And again, remember, the first time this happened, I went in to see a counselor. And I've only had this happen four times in my whole life. Okay. But I tell you, it is the strangest thing ever when it happens. It's so strong. Anyone who, who, is, who has this as a skill in their life will just go, yeah, of course. that, that. They, wouldn't even, they would accept this conversation with zero judgment. Now, these four times it's occurred to you, were they each... Single sentences, just like, no, we're sleeping? Or were they so the, paragraphs? I'll give, you the, I'll, give you, I'll give you the script. Sure. Uh, the, 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 the first time was, we're right over here. If you want to meet us, stay the night. To which I replied, this is in Tennessee, to which I replied, because the first time anything like this ever happened in my life, and I was scared, and the hair was up on the back of my neck. I had never felt that. And I said, I'm not ready. And they said... That's fine. And they walked away. And I, okay. That was in my mind. So That's cool. When they said, we're here, did they give you a location or they said here and it was implied they were near you? Both. The location was basically the hill right over there that I could see from about 150 feet away. Uh-huh. That's pitch black. I'm in the dark. Uh-huh. And they're, they're right. And I, and the image in my brain that was seared in my brain was of a large hulking male figure and a small child. So both interesting, man. In, both in classic Bigfoot look, okay. if you will. And that really freaked me out. Um, and nothing. And then, and then I think a couple of, uh, well, no, actually, oh, a few months went by after that one. The next one was a little more menacing. Um, it was during a meditative process on the Texas Bigfoot episode. And that one I never told anybody on camera, but there I did get 
during the meditation stage, I got, I got a, uh, yeah, yeah, get, get, get ready, get ready for this was kind of sort of the message and it felt menacing and dark and I didn't like it. And I, and I didn't, I just kind of like, no, 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 not going here. The third time was the, uh, in Oregon. And it was the, the answer in my brain was simply no thanks for sleeping. And the fourth time was the Portland, Portland episode where, where basically this particular being said, um, yeah, yeah, we're here. We're, we're ready for you. You know, and, uh, and that was a wonderful experience. So am I crazy? Uh, am I, am I, are, they, are they hallucinations? Is it lucid dreaming? Is it blah, 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 blah? I don't know. But I know that in all instances, I was wide awake, very sober, very straight, and not trying to make this happen in my brain. And I've tried many, many other times and nothing happens. But these times, they just sear, it sears in the middle of your brain. You can just, it's it just, you can't not hear it, you know? When the first time you had a back and forth, or at least you said one statement, which is, I don't think I'm ready. Did you say that in your mind? Do you say it out loud? How did you say it? Yeah, I say it in my mind. And so someone's going, oh, yeah, sure. They speak English. Sure, sure, sure. No, sure. what they do is it's a process of your mind deciphers for you what you're supposed to understand. And, and to me, that if I was Chinese, it would be in, it would, it would be in Mandarin, you know, or something. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah, it's, it's a... That, yeah, spoke so you me. gave your intention, like, hey, I'm not ready currently. Okay, now when uh -huh. they spoke to you all of these times, were they instantly understood or were they understood linearly? Like when you read, you understand the first word, and the next one, and then the next one, and the next one? Or was it all at once they said that sentence to you? Interesting question. The, the, the sentences were short enough that the distinction would be too hard to make. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can decipher it linearly or in a linear fashion or... If it was all at once, it was just too short. Okay. As an aside, the reason is that some people, when they speak to other beings, or let's say even they have an encounter with God, it's as if all of that is said to them like that. And it's not like, it's like when you read one word, you don't read each letter, you read the word yeah. instantly. If I, if I was forced to make the distinction, that is what I would say. I would say it feels like it's all at once. <coughs> it's just that the sentences were short. So it, same thing sort of thing. Is it all right if I ask you a couple of details of the orbs, of what the heck happened yeah. there? Okay. So firstly, how large were the orbs and what color were they? Where did they come from? When did they come? Why? Uh, well, you won't be able to answer why. Well, I mean, I was, uh, we were, uh, Devin and I, because Devin was with me on that one. We were sitting and uh, I just hear De uh, Devin go, hey, Les, come here. You've got to look at this. And I, and I, something like that. And I get up and I walk over to Devin. He's 10 feet away, 15 feet away. And about 15 feet away from him were two hovering orbs, one the size of a golf ball, one the size of a pie plate. The pie plate one was much more fuzzy and less distinctive. The golf ball was more focused in, if you will. They stayed hovering there. And you could see like gentle hover in their movement, but in the same position for, I want to say, a good 15, 20 minutes. Enough for us to, to look and go, is there a car lights flashing off something? Is there a local? I mean, we're in the middle of the forest, right? Our eyes are, you know, I mean, our, we're all clear. Again, straight, you know, no, no, uh, we weren't smoking anything or drinking anything sober. And um, I think what's going on there, if this species truly exists, this phenomenon is actually something is that one of its attributes is its ability to manifest 
or ability to manipulate its own life force energy. And in doing so, it has a physical manifestation, which is the big hairy creature we see that smells and shits and eats and screams and throws rocks. And, and the other manifestation, which potentially could be in as light energy, which we would then translate as being an orb. And, and also the other message that we got the next morning from the woman who is an empath and a psychic with these beings, that she said that she was told that some of the others, not the one guy that's supposed uh -huh. to flip me over at night, but some of the others came to look at us in the earlier part of the night. And that's when the orbs were there. Mm, okay. What color were the orbs? Both the same color too? Like your shirt, whitish. Have you heard of any connections between UFOs and Bigfoot? Of course, I've had people. I've heard people say that often, 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 often. Um, my first craziest experience was on the mountain in Radium Springs, and there was a scenario that happened there that I do not believe I mentioned on the show because I didn't want to confuse the viewers. It's the other thing, right? Sometimes you you're forced before you feed somebody filet mignon, you've got to get give them a taste of meat first. All right. You know, and so uh, that night um, I looked over in the skies and I saw these four big lights. They were massive, huge, and they were all lined up and they could not have been airplanes, but they were up in the sky and they were just there for 20 minutes. And then I, I went back and I, I, I'm not sure where I went to go. Maybe I went to get my camera. I came back, they just, they were gone. They disappeared. And I'd never seen anything like that in my entire life. And I'm just like, oh my God, like I'm thinking this is, but at the time I'm just like, oh, this is cool. What the hell is, at the time I'm like, what the hell is that? And that was the night you were with wow. Devin or that was a different night? No, this is the night I'm alone. This is on the mountain, top of mountain, in, a mountain in Radium Springs, but I was one of my surviving Bigfoot episodes. That was the night after those lights where I felt I'd had something come in and sit on top of me while I was trying to sleep. And everybody's going to say that's old lady syndrome, that's sleep paralysis. I get that. I'm familiar with that. That is not what I felt that night. It felt like somebody was sitting on me with very large buttocks. Mm. And then that next morning, the, uh, these apples I put on a tree, they all disappeared and the camera was filming, didn't catch anything. They just disappeared on camera. You know, the whole night was freaked out. But my point is that it started with those big four lights in the sky. And you said, you know, connection of UFOs to Bigfoot. I don't know. I really don't know. The thing about it is the world of the phenomenon of Sasquatch is over on one side here, it's a big hairy ape that's smart. And on this side, it's aliens and everything in between, you mm -hmm. know, able to travel dimensions. That's what you meant by the slippery rabbit that's, hole with mud and so on. Yes. Although more so what I need, but what I mean by the rabbit hole is, is my line of, well, if there is Sasquatch, what else is there? Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Skinwalker Ranch? Of course. Yes. Yeah, okay. So see, when I was researching a bit about UFOs, then I read about Skinwalker Ranch and the fact that there have been observed portals, whether or not this is true. There's been observed portals, perceived portals, and then Sasquatch coming out, and then this is a place where there's plenty of UFO activity and poltergeist activity as well. So a strange confluence of all these unexplained phenomenon. And, you know, when, as a scientist, when you hear about, let's say, well, what's consciousness have to do with so-and-so phenomenon? The scientists would always say there's this tendency in us to say unexplained phenomenon here, unexplained phenomena. Well, they're related somehow because they're both unexplained. And that's a foolish mistake. But when it comes to Bigfoot and UFOs, and pol well, let's just say Bigfoot and UFOs, it seems as if it's more than just the connection being drawn because there's question marks over each. In other words, okay, well, you want to riff on that. Yeah, I, well, I, no, no, I just think that um, 
I just think existence is so much bigger than our human little human brains can 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 comprehend. And and the thing is, it doesn't scare me. The rabbit hole doesn't scare me. It's just like, yeah, of course. I mean, we've had so much about UFOs that if a UFO landed in New York tomorrow, everybody would go, oh yeah, I, I figured they were there. Oh, we get a lot of that, you know, like, oh, it becomes the de facto. Of course, the yeah, aliens exist. I knew they, who, who didn't know? I knew. But we don't really know. Um, I just think my mind has always been, is this possible? And the answer to every single question that that's asked on in my mind is, could be, yep. I'm wide open to it. And here's the thing, that doesn't scare me. And it, the problem is that it scares a lot of people. And, and, and certainly a lot of religious people, it really scares them because then you're going to bring Satan into it, right? So to me, none of it, I just don't feel a fear. And I'm not being machismo. I just think the possibilities are endless. And isn't that awesome? Have you felt the fear and then you managed to overcome it or just temperamentally you don't feel the fear when it comes to that? Temperamentally, I don't feel the fear. Uh, and also I'm well aware of the fact that if I was face to face with an alien tomorrow, uh, he's got a, or she or it has a huge advantage over me. Of course. Yeah. Right. So what am I going to do about it? You know, what can I actually do? Go grab my AK-47? <laughs> mm -hmm. Actually, I wouldn't say of course. Sorry, I would step back. And the reason I say that is that there's some view that certain aliens have, let's say, evil intent or negative intent, and mm -hmm. that they cannot that... read our minds. Although you can communicate with them by intending, like you did with the Bigfoot, but they can't read your minds. And and the human capacity for love is what extinguishes, well, it extinguishes hate. And so, in some sense, let's say there are multiple types of aliens, and one is evil then you do have a power over the evil ones with your love. So that's why I say, well, I don't say, of course, that you oh, have I think, a power. I think, I think that's wonderful, fanciful thinking. But if that were true, then nobody would ever be hurt, would it? Because there's a lot of loving, caring people that have been murdered. Why didn't, they, why didn't their capacity for love just stop the human being from murdering them? I, 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 no, no, I, I, I think, you know, I hear, I hear about the greys, for example. I hear about the greys. And uh, I'm not... Look, when I had my first experience, what did I say to you? The hair was up on the back of my neck and I felt very, very nervous and I was too afraid to stay. I said, I'm not ready for this. Do I kick myself? Yeah, a little, but I wasn't ready. So there was fear there. I'm saying as a general rule, I don't walk around guiding my life based on fear of the unknown. I love the unknown and embrace the unknown. It's just that there will be aspects of the unknown that could be very detrimental to me and could harm me. And I don't think my capacity to love is going to stop me if I'm by myself in the middle of a, the forest and there actually are greys and a grey comes over to accost me. You know, I've heard that, that Sasquatch are there and often protect humans from the greys. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale 
both online and in person. They streamlined the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. I've heard that's a storyline people say. I mean, so, you know, I'm just kind of like, you know, when it's my time, it's my time. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to be abducted. I don't want to anal probe. But hey, I'll just go and, you know, that's not going to stop me from experiencing any of these things. Okay, let's get to some audience questions. Crepetus S asks, I've seen almost everything that you've done, Les, and I've appreciated your recent embrace of posting everything on YouTube. Frankly, I've had medical issues and I've watched Les's survival shows when I couldn't eat and I was in pain and it was extremely therapeutic. Has Les ever considered doing an urban survival show? No, I'll tell you why not. Um, as people ask sometimes, well, you do like almost like a homeless kind of thing, right? My problem with that is every time I get down to the brass tacks of doing it, it feels like I would actually kind of be disrespecting people who are truly hurting and truly homeless to go and do a survival show where I'm digging what? Digging in a dumpster? The other answer to that is I don't give a crap about the city. I'm a nature nut. I'm a wilderness guy. My stuff is all based on being in nature. I'm not there to teach you survival I or do survival tricks like these other shows. I'm showing you survival techniques to facilitate getting you out in the wilderness. So no, I won't do an urban show because of that. Bookman asks about limits. I want to know about him pushing through personal limits. Doing hard things is tough, but controlling the mind is tougher. How has survival shifted his mindset? The rewards are greater. To do the heavy lifting can break your back. But if it doesn't, then the rewards are so much greater. And the survival component of what I've done has been painful at times. But hey, I'm sitting here right now. I just had a wonderful cappuccino. Some cheesecake. I'm on the other side of it. And some cheesecake. You know, so I the beauty of pushing through the difficulties is then when you have, you have the perspective. Perspective's everything in life. Travel is so important. I just wish people would do more of that. And pain and, 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 and struggle uh, give you perspective. If we bubble wrap ourselves and protect ourselves, we just don't have any perspective uh, anymore. And uh, so I just always knew that. So that's, that's how I would, that's how it changed. I, I learned that getting to the other side of pain, getting to the other side of struggle and survival, traveling and seeing the world, these things give me perspective 
And when I have that perspective and I'm in conversation, I don't get caught up in bullshit. Paul V wants to know, when times are hardest, what is the one thing that gives you the strength to carry on? Trying to think of when times are hardest. <laughs> Feeling like I'm not done or reminding myself that I'm not done. I don't ever want to finish, ever. I want to be, you know, just putting out a novel on my 97th birthday just before I die or something, you know. Just reminding myself that I'm not finished and I have more yet to do. Gets me going, keeps me going. And it's like, okay, all right, suck it up. Let's get up and go again, you know. At Stan Alistair asks, have you ever used any of Wim Hof's cold endurance techniques? If so, can these extend one's survival in harsh conditions? Uh, I, if, if the harsh condition is being submerged in ice cold water, sure. Because <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, yeah, that'll extend that. You jump out of a boat in Alaska. I mean, that's probably going to help that. Absolutely. Uh, I think, but, but then overall, sure. I mean, I do believe and agree with the, with the concept of it. Um, simply because I felt my own body felt stronger and felt better because of doing the Wim Hof methods. So yeah, I, I, like I said, notwithstanding our earlier conversation about potential tinnitus from the breathing. Um, yeah, I, I think Wim's onto something pretty great. Uh, and, and I do adhere. I haven't gotten into his meditative techniques yet, but the first I've got steps one and step two, definitely. James McEvitt asks, Kurt, in Canada, most outdoorsmen have watched Survivor Man religiously. By the way, I'm from Toronto, in case you didn't know this. Did, ah. Mr. Did Mr. Stroud ever suffer any long-term physical or mental duress from his extreme survival outings? Thank you. No, not at all. Zero. Um, two reasons for that. I've had short-term. I've had parasites. That's the only thing that, that's really been a, an issue, but I've taken care of those with some pills, basically. Um, and otherwise, no. Uh, no long-term uh, no, not it's funny because it's the opposite. I think I'm out in nature, seven days alone. It's it. Nature heals. Nature strengthens. Nature nature de-stresses, and I I get that healing, that strengthening, and that de-stressing uh, to the nth degree. So no, I I have no long term and no short term really. I have nothing but benef benefits. Jimmy Lee says. Okay, I'm interested in what kind of theory of everything does Survivor Man has? How does he feel about the Great Reset and the technocratic neo-feudalism, which we seem to be headed for? So how does he feel about the Great Reset? Firstly, what the, yeah. what is the Great Reset? And then how do you feel about it? I'm assuming he's talking, when he says the Great Reset, I assume, I'm assuming he's talking about right now, this moment in time with the pandemic, because that's what everybody's calling the Great Reset. Um, and... and uh, how do I feel about it? What an interesting way to ask that. How do I... More about the technocratic neo-feudalism we seem to be headed for. Just this morning, I was thinking that here's how I feel about it. That I want to turn my back on it and continue creating. Because getting caught up in all of that going on around us is not good for the soul. Uh... If it's your thing, okay. But I got to be honest, 
it's never been my thing to get caught up in these big moments in time like this. In fact, when I was an outdoor guide, stuff used to come and go in the world and I barely even knew. I'm not saying be selfish, live selfishly, but what I'm saying is I better serve this greater theory of everything, if you will, if I am putting content out that uplifts people, inspires people, brings about a positive influence in people's lives. I better, I'm better served and I better serve this great thing that's going on we call life if I concentrate on that. And, I, and I'm not copying out from the question. I'm saying it's, I, I, turn, back, I turn my back on it, on that question, because I, I just, it'd be a waste of my energy to try to be, to try to even have a feeling about it right now. Some guy. I hope that's not a cop out. Oh no, 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 not at all. It's a great perspective. Some guy asks, "Have you found that being, have you found that being comfortable alone is one of the most important skills to have today?" Well, first of all, being comfortable alone is an important skill. But the most important, one of the most important skills to have today, being comfortable alone. I'm gonna say, you know, I, I'll say. Yes, that has merit. For one, if it's forced upon you, then you you have that you have that skill set. You have that 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 uh, associated muscle memory with being alone. If you're comfortable with it, you're okay. All right, well, this, I'm going to be alone for a bit. Okay, I can deal with that. And some people can't; they panic. Um, but is it one of the more necessary skills and more vital skills? Uh, it's circumstantial. I think that's a circumstantial skill. And if your circumstances indicate that that may be part of your future, then sure, you better be comfortable with being alone. But if, if not, then you can, you can cruise. You can cruise without really developing that skill set and concentrate on other skills, skill sets where you're more gregarious and you're more, you're more, you're more involved with people and so on. So I say it's circumstantial, but if, yeah, if your circumstances push for it, then yes, it's an important skill. Okay, two more questions. Philip Warheim asks, he may have spoken about this already, but ask him about prepping, especially for climate change and EMP slash solar storms. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry to burst the bubble here, but I think prepping, if you see prepping as building a bunker in the backyard, having a set of shotguns and various guns, having your store and being ready to, to, to protect your land as the way to prep. Because that's what I originally saw as preppers. Preppers now will say, no, that's not us. We're just, we're just having good supplies on it. So, oh, all right, well, then we have to define preppers. In my brain, preppers is the guy building the bunker. Okay, so let's just stay, let's go with that. I'm not talking about people who are getting themselves prepared. Uh-huh, uh-huh. See, that's how I interpret because I don't know about this word prepper. Yeah, so no, prepper. So being prepared, of course, it's a, that's a no-brainer. But the other version, I think, I think they're very, very foolish individuals. First of all, whatever goes down, we're not going to be ready for it. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to go out, I'm just going to hunt deer and fish for, for walleye, and I'll be set. Yeah, and if the lakes are full of acidification and the deer have died because of, you know, radiation, what, really? No, you're not. Um, I'm going to sit here in my bunker and protect myself, really. So if you're, 
12 year old daughter comes to you in tears and, and says, can my best friend and their family come and live with us? Cause their house was, was ruined in the disaster. You're going to sit there with a shotgun and go, no, stay away. No, you're going to let them in. So I think a lot of the, the hardcore prepper stuff is just bullshit and silly and nonsense and small minded. Um, uh, and also by the way, everybody else who has a bunch of guns also knows who has all the food and we know you have all the food. So, and we have bigger guns. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's a silly situation. But um, I think better than being prepared with food on hand. I think better than being prepared with spare clothing and equipment and this is being prepared with skill sets that enable you to survive through whatever. If you were just there in your clothes, how to be adaptive, how to, how to find things, how to, you know, scrounge things. That to me is stronger. And then secondarily, yes, I have a lot of food in my basement. Yes. Have you thought about making a course? Like you hear many YouTubers do Skillshare. Have you thought about making a course, whether it's on Skillshare or whatever it may be, on how to survive? Or is it so different in each environment? Oh, it's vastly different in each environment. And I, and I, I kind of have, right? Because if you think about it, 20 years of creating survival films with Survivor Man and the like, those, those films read out like a course. I, I wasn't making a TV show. I was teaching you how to survive. And I just launched the series Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud on PBS stations in the United States and on, um, uh, and on YouTube here in Canada. And those are meant to teach you ways to survive natural disasters. So yeah, I could do the whole online course thing. But you know, the thing about that is, is uh, uh, Kurt, is, is that to me, that smacks of being a businessman, doing something for a business sense. I've been doing courses my whole career and putting them out there in film form. Uh, so I, I'm, and I'm not into business. <laughs> all right. Last question comes from Dwayne Elizondo, Mountain Dew, Herbert Camacho. That's all one name. He wants mm. to know regarding the missing apple slash candy on his Bigfoot special and Bigfoot in general. Does he think there could be a species that is both interdimensional and low tech that is primitive even? Yeah, absolutely I do. And that's what I mean by their ability to manifest their own to to manipulate their own life force energy and then manifest and then they have, they manif different manifestations. So there's a physical manifestation and an orb manifestation, who knows? If we could do it, I'd do it. You know, what if I could man if I could manipulate my own life energy, perhaps I could vibrate to a point where I'm not visible to the eye anymore. Right? And it'd be cool as hell. Sub question from him, like have you ever experienced lost time while camping? Do you understand what he means by that? Oh, I totally do. And, you know, the short answer is no, I haven't. I know what he means, but I have not. Les, what do you have to promote? Where can people find out more about you? What's next for you? Okay. Actually, I'll do an addendum to that question. I did experience lost time while in the middle of a car accident. So there you go. And heard a very strong voice that told me to move. And if I didn't move, I was going to break my neck. So I moved and I did not break my neck. But I did break three ribs, punctured a lung, and dislocate two shoulders. How old so are you? That was, uh, that was just a couple of years ago, and, oh. and it happened in slow motion. I mean, it was legitimate slow motion in that role. It was unbelievable. Mm. Um, my wife was beside me. She experienced the exact same thing, slow motion. We watched it happen. No voice it happened for her? happened very fast. But no voice for her, though. No. So uh, the biggest thing for me really is my YouTube. I'm, I'm really having fun putting everything, else, everything on YouTube, Survivor Man, Les Stroud. Um, I have a brand new book out for kids, Wild Outside, uh, Getting Your Kids Out in Nature Again. Uh, and it's for them, by the way, written to them. 
Um, I have a brand new, um, I'm finally releasing my Mother Earth album on double vinyl, fold out, double fold out vinyl Ooh, album nice, nice. this year and two new albums after that. And, uh, and then I have my uh, two series that are on the PBS stations presented by American Public Television. That is Wild Harvest, Local Foraging, Turning Them Into an Amazing Meal, and Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud about surviving natural disasters. So a lot on the go all the time, a lot of this stuff outflowing um, and uh, getting all the way back to what you originally asked. And I think the reason is because I really don't want to cease this manifestation of my life force right now. I like the flesh and blood manifestation of my life force and that flesh and blood emotionally wants to be a prolific artist. And that's where I, that's and the road I go to down. Because you are. And continue to be. Continue to be. Absolutely. And that's what keeps me putting. So it's a lot. I love having a long list of things to say. <laughs> thank you, man. It was an honor for me to be hey, able to speak with you. Thank you very much. Love the questions uh, and, and love, the, love this podcast. So I appreciate it. Thanks, man. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.